0: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
1: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
0: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to Investment Uncut. This week, we are talking about investing like a family office, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Scott. Alex is the chairman of Schroeder's Global Family Office Services. Alex, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, and good morning.
0: Could you give us a sense of, I suppose, your current role, but also how you came to have the position that you've currently got?
2: Yeah, Well, the road that led me to today was I'm a member of a family business. I'm a fourth generation owner of a family business. I led the sale of that business in the mid-90s. So we crystallized the value that we created over, over 90 years and had the challenge of working out what we should do with the capital. I realized some of the things we wanted weren't available in the marketplace and I came across the concept of a family office and thought, aha, that's what we want. So I created one that was called Sandair. that subsequently evolved into being a family office for multiple families. In fact, over 20 by the time we were approached by Schroder's and were purchased by Schroder's at the end of last year. So my new role is very new. And the context is, I suppose, family business, family offices that I've been involved with for the last 25 years.
0: And is it just those family offices that you're now sort of chairing effectively or has it broadened with the move to Schroder's?
2: Well it's much wider because of course Schroder's via Casanova and its international businesses work with multiple families many of whom are of the scale or either have a family office or or are using family office type services. So the purchase of Sander is about enhancing the services that we can offer to those families and obviously building around that proposition to work with more families that we don't yet know.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm really looking forward to getting into some of those insights and reflections from that journey you've been on. But before we do that, Alex, perhaps you could just tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't tend to find on your CV.
2: Well, it doesn't say that I've walked the last degree to the South Pole and it doesn't say that I've crossed in winter Baffin Island, which is an, another interesting cold weather hike. So there's a couple of things that. Uh, wow, you've yeah. walked
1: to the South Pole.
2: Yes, but let's be very clear: the last degree is 60 nautical miles. It's not from the edge, but it's still it's still a proper expedition in extreme extreme conditions with a group of people. I was not alone, like many people who do this.
0: <laughs> and what inspired you to do that expedition?
2: I, it's really hard to say. In fact, it was a client of mine who's who's become a friend who rang me up and said, "Hey, Alex, I'm I'm organising groups to go to the South Pole. You might be interested." And I said, "No, not really." <laughs> uh, and I put the phone down. I thought, "Oh, come on! You know, this is extraordinary. How how many people? Mm-hmm. How why don't you? you? You like hiking, and it's a it's a big commitment. There's a lot of there's a lot of time involved." And I thought, "Well, if you're not going to do this, if you're not going to accept this invitation, you will never do it." So I did. And it was extraordinary. It was very tough, but an extraordinary experience.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, and I suppose the why not argument is a good one, really, isn't it? So, Yeah,
2: it wasn't really a risk. I mean, it's very cold and you can get damaged by the cold. But, you know, there are very few crevasses to fall into. It is at altitude, but not extreme altitude. You know, all these things that go wrong in, in climbing mountains. And it's, it's an extraordinary place. Sitting on the bottom of the planet.
0: <laughs> yeah, indeed. Standing there. indeed. <laughs>
1: Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, what an experience. Anyway, let's turn to the slightly more mundane question of investing. I mean, love to hear a little bit, Alex, about your, your sort of guiding philosophy on investing. What's most important? What gets overlooked? And also, you mentioned when you were looking to set up a family office, there were things that were missing in the market. So perhaps you could chat about a little bit of that as well.
2: Well, I mentioned the generational perspective when we were setting the business up. The task, in my view, of a family is to look forward, and they have the luxury, if they have the capacity to form a family office, they have the luxury of being able to think forward through multiple generations, and they can think seriously about stewardship. And if they're going to do that, then they need to think about what that means. What that means is being very clear on strategy and being very clear that it's strategy that matters, not tactics. And I think quite a bit of what we might talk about is the distraction of tactical issues which tend to override strategic elements. And that's the opportunity for a family as well. I think the the family office by itself, if it's a single family office, is not regulated, is not overseen, it can explore themes, it can pursue enthusiasms of the owners, it can develop expertise. And I think that can be a real interesting alternative approach to investment. Of course there's lots of mainstream stuff that goes on there. But the mandate can be flexible and interesting and far sighted.
0: And I guess your views on single versus multiple family office because I suppose you've got experience in both camps if you like.
2: Yeah. I guess the initial deciding factor is scale. If a family has very substantive scale, then the right options probably creating its own single family office as the scale goes down then those services can be delivered on a collective basis by a multi-family office there's also an element that over generations as a family gets very big it just gets very complex and challenging to service multiple family members and it may be that the resources of a larger organization can help you with that nevertheless the single family office the large single family office very often use the service of a multifamily office to do certain things that they wish to delegate to it. So there's a difference, but they're all part of the same kind of group.
0: And you you mentioned, Alex, stewardship and and how you can focus on stewardship when you're thinking forward multiple generations. Could you maybe just, I suppose, give us a feel for how you've seen that focus change over the years that you've been involved in sort of family business, family offices?
2: Yeah, well, I mean I think one of the biggest themes here is that I really think we are in a really interesting phase of the evolution of the investment world. When when I started the investment landscape was much simpler and the the analysis of investment returns was as straightforward now as it is then risk return income etc. What's happened now I think and this is why it's so interesting is The evolution of the whole ESG theme has brought something very different to families because, for the first time, we can start to talk about their values and we can start to talk about their long term aspirations and the impact that they wish to have. And the tools that enable us to do that, I think, will amazingly enrich the connection that families have with their capital and the conversations around that capital. And equally, the deployment of that capital over the long term as well. So I think it's changing and it's changing in a very substantive way. It's easy to dismiss it as a short term fad. I just don't think it is. I also think that if you think about capital being multi generational, then the next generation of owners are going to be the, the millennials and the, the Generation X's, and they have a very different approach to the way their capital should be deployed. And this, again, is really interesting for a family office because the engagement of the inheriting generation is critical in terms of its longevity and in terms of its ability to undertake good stewardship. So there's some really interesting conversations going to be had in the short and medium term, I think, between the family office and their underlying clients. And this will evolve.
0: And I'm aware that you're also a pension scheme trustee. And and in that sort of space, we often have the discussion or debate about ethical versus ESG type investing, ethical versus responsible investing. Do you see that that sort of split is different when you're then in a family office scenario where, as you said, there's such a very personal connection and a much closer personal connection, I suppose, between the people being the investments on behalf of those people? or, Or is it actually quite a similar debate?
2: It's probably similar, but I think it can be different. I mean, I we kind of fall into the vocabulary here, don't we? The interpretation of the vocabulary. My interpretation of ethical is you're probably excluding certain things that you don't want to do. And I think if you're investing on behalf of multiple stakeholders, that's a hard thing to do. I think if you're investing on behalf of a small focus group, it's an easier thing to do. So, in fact, I think you can pursue an ethical approach if that means excluding certain things of which you don't approve. So I think you can sharpen that dialogue and probably sharpen your actions on re- as a result of working for a smaller family group.
1: Yes, yeah, so Alex, I'd love to hear your reflections on what, out of all that, has sort of worked well and less well over the years that you've been been involved in sort of family offices.
2: Well, I'll go back to when we set up, and I'll go back to one of the questions that I didn't answer that you asked me before as to how the landscape's changed and why and what was, what was needed, what I didn't see in the marketplace. And what I didn't see was an ability, coming back to my point, strategy is what's really important, to focus on strategy and asset allocation in an independent sense and status. To, you know, open architecture in the mid-90s didn't exist as a phrase. So I wanted multiple managers. My family business had been in investment management insurance. I understood stood enough about that to know that I wanted multiple talent working for us. I couldn't get that service in the marketplace, and that's why I established it. So that status of focus on strategy and being independent was was a differentiator for us. It worked really well for right through the twenties, I suppose. So, sorry, right through the from two thousand onward, because that was the beginning. Of this working for other families as the investment landscape has changed and become more complex, and we've already talked about the ESG dialogue the resources you need to address the idiosyncratic and complex areas of the market mean that being a small independent boutique becomes more challenging if you want to give access to the more idiosyncratic areas and to have expertise to look at them, particularly if they're in in a less efficient area. Less efficient means less good data. Less good data means more resource. So I think there is a, phase of being small and independent has worked really well. And I think as markets have evolved and our ability to apply other elements such as purpose and values and impact onto investment portfolios has becoming more challenging. And if I'd say really the things that have worked least well, I suppose, for us over the 2025 20, years, it probably has been those areas where As an independent organization, we undertook some more idiosyncratic investing, which either went well or badly. And the challenge, of course, if you're doing things at the margin of a portfolio, which you can do in a family office, is this exciting and the interesting thing, is that they create a lot of heat and noise when they go wrong. When they go well, everybody is happy, but when they go wrong, they require a lot of resources to sort them out. So with this ability to invest in multiple areas following enthusiasms and idiosyncrasies come some challenges as well. And that sort of leads you in to some extent to say, is this a strategic issue or a tactical problem? And is this a short-term problem? So the differentiation between a short-term problem and a long-term issue is sometimes hard to discern through the heat and noise of market turmoil.
0: I think that leads us really nicely to the next area I was keen to explore, which is in terms of decision-making. So you just mentioned heat and noise and trying to see through that. How's your experience of decision-making with a very small group versus what's presumably become a much more expansive team and process?
2: Well, it's, it's so difficult, isn't it? That's what we all struggle with. Who's actually making the decision? How do committees function? Who influences committees? Who is really responsible? Things haven't changed that much because, in my view, there is always a CIO to whom responsibility has been delegated to make decisions. And I don't think that changes whether you're a big organization or a small organization. What changes in a big organization is the resources that CIO can deploy to explore what he or she wants to understand and explore. To me, the really interesting point, and we we all face this all the time, and this is why one never stops learning, is how committees, boards, collections of people make good decisions. And I've seen plenty of less good decisions made over the years, usually because although it's a collective group with delegated responsibilities, an individual with very strong views and respected individual can sway. A large group of people in a specific direction. The person to whom decision making is delegated is thereby put in a pretty awkward position. And I think that this always happens. It happens in a conversation around a dinner party. Someone has a really strong view, and everyone starts nodding. Well, they don't really agree. It's just, it's just that it's just that it's that very often the dynamic of the meeting, the dynamic of the conversation, is better if we nod along and agree, and that person holds sway. And this can happen in so many situations. So really good decision making, I think, has to come from committees, groups of people who are really well balanced, do explore issues and challenge each other, but make sure that they delegate to someone who's making the decision, because then they can be held responsible for that and the performance can be assessed. I think that decision making from an investment perspective can be occluded by too many individual opinions when too many people are involved.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really fascinating point. Because from what I think you've said, you've been at that sort of committee sort of non-exec level with delegated CIOs sort of operating but closer to the investment side. Do you see people struggling with that gap as in people sort of wanting to get more down to the exec level and trying to get the level right in committee sort of conversations?
2: Over the years, I'm not experiencing that now, but over the years I've seen it. It's a natural thing, I think, because what's tangible, what's interesting, the things that we individually really understand. And it may be a specific stock situation. It may be a perspective on one country. It may be a specific private equity situation. And and so the challenge is always, I think, for that group is to say, no, we're about strategy, not tactics. Can we please get back to the direction we're heading the allocations we have, the markets we want to be in, what do we think the world's going to be like in three, five years' time? And that just is hard to do because if you think about what pick up today's newspaper, it will all be about the noise of yesterday. People don't write about, it's not a particularly sexy subject to write about long-term strategy. It's not a particularly, I mean, what what you're doing is putting strategy in place for organizations. And, you know, I'm talking about doing that for families, but it it's not a particularly great conversation piece. But that's the challenge, I think, around a committee is to continually step backwards and say, what does this mean for strategy?
0: And I suppose you've got the sort of layer of you've got the group of people making the day-to-day decisions and trying to stay focused on the very long term. And then you've got the families as well, who presumably are quite interested in in the performance of their of their assets, do you find that that dynamic makes it distracts, potentially could distract from the long term? Because understandably, the family might see something in the newspaper and think, well, actually, that could be affecting my investments. Yeah,
2: yeah. And they
0: struggle to see through the short term.
2: And quite understandably, and it's the challenge that everyone faces, we all face, don't we, is as to, as to how, what does long term really mean? How long will your performance deviation from a short term benchmark be acceptable? And can you be steadfast and can you have the courage to say, no, this is what our strategy is. We understand that. That tension, I think, is one of the critical challenges for particularly for families, but any long-term investor really is to say, no, this is what we're doing. Because how long can you how long can you last? What's the Keynesian quote? The market can be irrational longer than you can remain solvent. So ultimately things have to break and ultimately you have to say, okay, we got that wrong. I've seen one definition to suggest it's about three years that you can withstand that deviation, and that's probably because that's as long as a CIO can take the heat. You know, after three years is just a capitulation and say, you know, okay, let's move on. But I do think that that is, again, it's a fabulous opportunity, but it's a real challenge. Because again, the stuff we read is not about that. The stuff we read is
1: not about the long term, it's about the short term. Yeah, it's such a great point. And- any particular habits you found useful? I mean, and I suppose are you literally saying you're trying to remind people Yeah, you know, it's about strategy, not the short term. I, I guess it must sound a little bit, dare I say it's sort of school schoolteachery to keep saying that to people again and again. And I suppose that one has to have the right relationships and the right sort of atmosphere for that to work.
2: Oh, well, I guess I would say I don't say it. I think it's just if I'm able in the context of either helping to shape a conversation around a committee or just talking to people, it's just the direction I'll try and head a conversation making time for that making sure that we are thinking far ahead it's really hard to do it's harder than short-term thinking and it will very often be wrong that's the other frustrating thing is and you you won't know for a very long period of time as to whether it was right or not and having good brains around the table to enable us to do that i think is really important and i guess that's the challenge also for a you know any cio in a Family office is the environment should be and ought to be different than one that they probably come from in the institutional world.
0: So, Alex, you've you've given us a bit of a flavour of trends that you've seen over the years in terms of, I suppose, you mentioned complexity of markets. Are there any other sort of big and ESG? Of course, you mentioned. Are there any other sort of big trends that you've observed over over the years?
2: Yeah, I think when I created the business again in the mid 90s. Most of the exceptional talent in investing sat in the larger institutions. And I think if you look at it now, it's still there, still exceptional talent within large institutions. But there's been a sort of centripetal force that has thrown people out. Lots of independent firms. I don't just mean hedge funds, but I mean that in all the asset classes, there are fantastically talented people who might previously have sat within large organizations that are now able to function in smaller groups. And that, in essence, I suppose, was the sort of early insight about the importance of open architecture. But I think there's just been an increase in that. And I think, therefore, for people looking for for a career in financial services, there's a lot more choice now certainly thinking back to my graduation choices that all the opportunities came from the large institutions people wouldn't even consider joining small firms you'd never heard of. all the the smart ones did and i guess they're the ones who are now the plutocrats but but (laughs) but by and large i think the opportunity for for talent to survive and thrive in smaller organizations has increased dramatically and that's partly made investing more complex as well because you need the capacity to find those sources of talent. And it's not to say there are still exceptional people within the larger organizations, but I think there's just more evenly spread now.
0: Yeah. And I suppose on the surface that sounds like a very good thing because you get more variation of, of investment approaches, more competition in the markets, pushing fees down, all all of those sorts of things. Is that sort of in line with your feeling? Or or do you actually think that there's elements that it's where it's better for there to be a focus in the larger organisations?
2: I think for the investor, it's a great thing. I mean, the challenge being is if you're a small investor, you're not going to find those solutions. So I think it's a luxury of the larger pool of capital. Equally, the way for a smaller investor to get access to that is to align themselves with a larger organization that have the resources to find those sorts of talent. So provided there is a focus on open architecture, then it's a good thing for everybody.
1: Alex, anyway, we were going to ask you about what you're worried about over the next 12 months in investing, but of course I guess that does fly in the face a little bit of what you've been saying about focusing on strategy in the long term.
2: Yeah, so forgive me if this is a bit facile, I guess. I mean, my perspective would be, you know, other than fiscal experimentation, geopolitical strife, global pandemic, and whether my family my family and I will get a summer holiday abroad this year, really not much over the next twelve months. But but so, <laughs> so so I guess I should say, you know, what what I'll be trying to do is actually within the next twelve months to discern what this means about the next 60 or so. And to to do the hard thinking around that. And I don't want you to think for a moment that I'm good at that I just think it's part of the job in terms of what I actually do is to have that focus and I think that other people are really great at it and that's why you need committees of people to help the actions of the CIO to inform them to guide them to stimulate them and to hold them to account
0: well that was a fantastic final answer and very succinct As we come towards the end of this chat, Alex, what's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away?
2: Well, I sound like a broken record, don't I? Well, I suppose, look, we're talking about family offices. I think that they are really interesting organisations. I think that they have significant degrees of freedom to invest. Their challenge will always be to be strategic because you're working on behalf of a family that hopes to maintain... Its assets over multiple generations. So think strategically, acknowledging occasionally you've got to act tactically as well. You want to inform yourself about this stuff. It's much more difficult than picking up the second section of the FT and just reading about who's reported their results and who's floating for a billion. You know, it's all you get in the business news, really. You know, you get some commentary which is. Which is more interesting and thoughtful, but it's quite rare, which means actually you don't have to waste too much time reading the papers. (laughs) If you think like (laughs) me.
0: True. True. (laughs) I suppose simple but not easy is the message. Well,
2: that's Richard Oldfield's wonderful book, who, of course, was running a family office at the time. And he puts it so well. I recommend it to anybody if they can get hold of one now.
1: (laughs) Alex, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: For those at the sharp end, it's the most. Extraordinarily meritocratic career. There are very few careers, in my view, where your performance can be assessed and measured, analyzed, discussed, and made visible to not only your peers but also externally. Other than sports, I hesitate to think where else? I mean, I don't know how well my doctor performs, how well my lawyer performs against a peer group and against objective benchmarks. So so that is very exciting if you're that sort of person, and it's pretty intimidating if you're not. Now, obviously, there are lots of interesting and productive careers around that, which those of us that don't like being marked to market on a regular basis can pursue. But I think it's just... it's. It is extraordinary for that reason.
0: I'd never heard it put like that. I like that, that way of thinking about it. Can
2: them. you think of another one? I mean, I think, you know, everyone in, everyone in cricket knows all, you know, you can get by wizards and get all the averages and that sort of thing. And, and increasingly, you know, in all sports, people are carrying monitors that measure how many miles they run, etc. Well, I, I don't think there are many careers where somebody can become a fund manager, say, a named person uh, whose performance is, is so intensively measured.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: It takes a certain sort of person to be comfortable with that.
0: Indeed. Alex, you, you mentioned a, a recommendation just in one of your previous answers, but which, of course, was the Richard Oldfield book that we'll, we'll link. Are there any other recommendations that you have for the listeners?
2: Well, most recently, I probably should have known about it before, but I've come across the book Capital Allocators by Ted Seeders. Am I pronouncing it right? Ted Seeds? And, of course, that's all about CIOs working in family offices and sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. And that's excerpts from 250 podcasts or whatever the number is, and that's full of interesting nuggets. I mean, my reading otherwise, I suppose, splits between novels, which is not appropriate for today, and good and interesting business reads. I mean, I've been particularly fascinated by the books that I was reading on disasters, I suppose, the Theranos story, WeWork, and what interests me more than anything behind those, and I can give you the links to those, you probably know them anyway, but what interests me more than anything of reflecting on that is is the human aspect of that as to why, and I'm conscious one's got a court case ongoing now, of course the Theranos one I think is in court now, but how and why so many sensible people were I'm not saying misled, but we're, we're enthused and supported these extraordinary claims. How, I mean, I guess when it comes down to it, I think it's that in these two cases, the entrepreneur was addressing a mundane issue, taking a blood sample, working in an office that it impacts us all and say, I can do this differently. I can do this better. I can make this more relevant, more current, more contemporary. And we're all kind of ready for changes to the mundane things in our lives. And when a, when an individual sort of visionary comes along, we say, yeah, yes, of course, you're right. You know, those are the stories that that interest me. Well, that's the the, the background to those two stories, not necessarily the minutiae of what went on, but actually the sort of human nature to say, yes, offices will be different forever. And yes, you know, you can go in and take a simple blood prick and that will tell me whether I got cancer or not. So we grasp these outlandish proposals or propositions and that's just an interesting factor of human nature, I think. And it, it'll happen again. It's probably happening now.
0: No doubt. And it, it's back to what you said about decision-making, I suppose. Yes,
2: isn't it? yes, I was going to make that link. I mean, it comes back to the power of an individual expressing, if you like, an extreme view, but they're coherent and they're respected, can sway lots of good thinking people and you go back through the supporters of businesses and there are more like that i know of who made utterly what they felt were utterly rational decisions to put capital into these situations that were ultimately not good decisions but getting back to my broader theme anybody that did that will say well that was a tactical area you know strategically i'm fine
1: what a fascinating note to end on that's a really thought-provoking point there all the stuff about the persuasiveness of those stories i really enjoyed those books as well so we'll include links to them. That's a great note to end on. Alex, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great conversation.
2: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Nice to talk to you both.
0: You too. Thanks, Alex. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.